Welcome to the sermon podcast of Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Our mission is to respond to God's love by following Jesus and loving God, loving one another, and serving the world. If you're in Knoxville, we'd love for you to join us in person. In the meantime, enjoy this message from God's Word. Our Psalter reading is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in division. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way of his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to your God, to our God. And they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels numbering the myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Cedar Springs. you're new with us this morning? Me too. All right. Welcome. We are glad that you're here. My name is James Forsyth, and it is a great privilege, great honor to be called as your, your next senior pastor. I look forward to, to leading our church family as we together follow Jesus, and I look forward to getting to know many of you, all of you personally as well. For now, though, I want to turn together to God's Word, because that's why we're here. We're not here to meet with me. We're here to meet with with the Lord. We're here to enjoy who He is and all that He's done for us in the Gospel. We're here to celebrate the fact that He is worthy, worthy of all honor and blessing and praise that we could ever bring to him. And so let's turn to meet with him now in his word together. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I encourage you to pull out a Bible, pull out your phone, open it up in an app, keep it open as we work our way through the first four verses this morning. Uh, this fall, we're going to work our way through the whole book. Um, we're going to take a, a chapter each week, but we start today with a, a passage that gives us an amazing description of who Jesus is. So let's look at it together. Hebrews chapter one, starting in verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray as we come to the Lord and his word. Father, we are grateful for your word and for this passage that tells us about the beauty of Jesus. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would meet with each one of us now and that we ourselves would taste and see something of his beauty. That we wouldn't just, you know, think that, we're supposed to find Jesus beautiful or know that the right answer is that Jesus is beautiful, but that we ourselves would experience him as beautiful and that as a result, we would give him the honor and blessing and praise that he is, he is worthy of. So be with us, uh, show us Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
So as you know, I'm from Bonnie, Scotland, and this is a picture of my grandmother and I in, in Scotland. She is in her 80s. She is a natural blonde still. Isn't that amazing? All these years, she's still, still going strong. Unfortunately, though, my grandmother now has dementia. You familiar with dementia? It's a, a cruel and inexorable disease where you lose your mind by inches until it takes you to your death. Well, several years ago, my grandmother started to forget small things, started to forget um, short-term things like whether or not she'd put the laundry on and people she'd just met and maybe things that she had, had just said. But then in more recent years, she started to forget the bigger things, including the husband who loved her for 60 years right until his death. One day, a couple of years ago, my mother got a call from my grandmother and, and said to her, oh, look, there's a, there's a strange man in the house and he won't leave. Now, my mother knew what was happening. She knew there, there was a strange man in the house. She knew he wouldn't leave, but that it was just my grandfather and there was nothing really to be worried about. But still, my mother drove over to their home and sat with my grandmother and tried to just patiently explain, look, this isn't a strange man. This is your husband. And no, he's not leaving because he lives here, but just patiently talk her, her through this situation. Well, my grandmother wasn't really, wasn't really having any of it, but eventually she looked my grandfather up and down and then whispered to my mum, well, at least he's good looking. <laughs> 60 years in, he's still her, her type. Amazing. But also 60 years of love that had disappeared from view. And I can't help but wonder if that's a powerful picture of how God must feel when he looks at me and when he looks at you. When he looks at his own bride and sees how quick we are to forget who he is. How quick we are to forget just how much he loves us. It turns out we all have spiritual dementia when it comes to the love of Christ. Yes, sometimes we remember. Sometimes we remember that there is a, a savior in heaven and that he loves us unconditionally. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done. And this savior doesn't just love us in a, in a generic sense. He's crazy about you in, in particular. Again, doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You might be the Sunday school teacher. You might be a grinning drunk. There's grace for all of us. He will love us all the same. And sometimes we remember this love and we remember that we were made to live in it, to live a big, full a life of faith, a life of freedom and purpose and joy as we respond to his love by loving him in return and loving one another and, and serving his world. Sometimes we remember the love of Christ, but then sometimes we forget. Dementia kicks in, we get caught up in the business and the busyness of day-to-day of -day life, and we forget about Christ. How many times have you found that you haven't really thought about Jesus since the last time you were in church? And then when we do think about him, perhaps we feel, we feel bad. We have this sense that he must be looking down, and can it, 
disappointed with us. Maybe he's pleased with some Christians, but not, not with Christians like us. Or if we're really honest, maybe when we think about him, we don't feel bad. We just feel, we feel bored. We feel that this Jesus, this faith is disconnected from the, the day-to-day pressing realities of, of our own lives. And when we forget, we end up living very small spiritual lives. We've been made for a, for a big, full life. But when we forget, we live very small lives of, of, of faith, where we go through the motions, we show up at church, maybe we go to a Bible study, but it's all part of a, a religious facade. We're playing church. We're not really animated by the love of Christ in our hearts. Well, this tendency to forget is why the book of Hebrews was written. It was written to to Jewish believers. So this is a a group who have become Christians, but who are now tempted to fall back into their old religious ways. They've, They've met Christ, but they've started to forget. And the antidote, we're told, to our spiritual forgetfulness is, chapter 12, verse 2, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on on Jesus. And so in every chapter, the unknown author, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, is going to celebrate the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. He's going to say, hey, don't forget. Don't have spiritual dementia. Remember all that we have in Christ and remember that life in him is better than any alternative. Over the next few weeks, we're going to cover a lot of ground. But today, in verses 1 through 4, we start with with an introduction. That's how the book of Hebrews begins. It begins by introducing us to Jesus, this one that we are to to fix our eyes upon. Look at the context with me in verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Let's not gloss over the fact that this passage is telling us we have a a God who speaks. A God who, who speaks. Long ago, God spoke. Now he has spoken. It's a remarkable claim that we shouldn't grow, grow cold to. Not only is there a God in heaven, but he has something to say. And not only does he have something to say, but he has something to say to me. And he has something to say to you sitting in your pew this morning. It should feel a little unnerving. And if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, wrestle with this claim. There's a God. He has something to say. Because if this claim is, is true, then surely we want, to, we want to listen to him. In the past, we read God spoke with variety. Long ago, the first words of our verse are a reference to the the Old Testament. The Old Testament, when God spoke to his people through all kinds of of different means. He spoke through prophets, he spoke through dreams, he had visions, he spoke through a burning bush, he even spoke through a donkey, he spoke through all kinds of things. And as he spoke, his voice had, had different accents. He spoke as as a thunder to to Moses and as as a whisper to Elijah. He spoke as a father to Abraham and as a mother to Isaiah. In the past, he spoke with great variety. But now we read he has spoken with finality. You see it there? Still verse 1. In these last days, 
It's a reference to the New Testament. So the author is, is dividing all of human history in two. Long ago, everything God said before Jesus, and now in these last days, everything God is saying in Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament. He calls the New Testament days the last days because there isn't going to be a third installment from God. God has spoken with finality. He has issued his final word. Why? Because verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son. F.F. Bruce, one commentator says, the story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ, but there is no progression beyond him. I love this idea. God had a lot to say, and throughout all of human history, his, his, his lavish communicative God shared more and more and more and more until we got to Jesus when he said it all and dropped the mic. Everything he has to say, he says in Jesus. Jesus is the final word from God. Everything we need for this life and the next is given to us in him. And it's in this context that we then get our introduction, our introduction to, to Jesus. And I love what happens in the rest of verse two through to the end of verse four, because honestly, the author just gets carried away. As soon as he mentions Jesus, he gets excited and unfolds seven reasons why Jesus is, is amazing. And as he does so, he, he doesn't even take a single breath. The, the New Testament was originally written in, in Greek, and in the Greek language, verses one through four, the passage we read this morning, just make up one sentence. It's like the author's got grammatically carried away. So he's just now taken with Jesus and all the reasons that Jesus is awesome. And he's going to tell us them all without even stopping to insert a period. So let's look at this description. These seven reasons were given that Jesus is beautiful, that we might remember him. Things we must not forget about him, that we might fix our eyes upon him as we live this life of faith. You ready? Content of verses two through four. Number one, don't forget, our author says, Jesus is the heir of all things. What does this mean? Simply this means that, that, that all authority has been given to Jesus. This is the, the Bible's way of saying that everything belongs to Jesus and he has authority over it all. God has spoken to us by him and he's appointed him the heir of all things, that all authority on heaven and earth now belong to him. Earlier we read from Psalm 2, where we read, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Everything belongs to him. We could think uh, more familiarly, perhaps, if you've been around the church of, of Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to, to me. All authority in heaven, all the spiritual forces for good and evil have been placed under his feet. All authority on earth, all kings and nations and presidents and people and me and you are all answerable to him as the heir of all things. Jesus is the one who owns all things and has authority over it all. Don't forget, the writer says, that Jesus is the heir. Jesus is better. Second reason comes in the next words. Look down there with me. We're just going to work through them, through them all. Don't forget, not just that Jesus is the heir, but don't forget that Jesus is the one who created the world. Verse two, through Jesus, God created the world. 
Now, the term that's translated as, as world in our text would better be translated as, as universe. It's a reference not just to our little globe, but to the, to the entire cosmos. And let's not grow old to the fact that Jesus is the one who made all this. I know we're so familiar with that language, but let's allow it to, to settle in. As I, was, as I was thinking about the scale of what the Lord has, has created, um, I came across these slides. Kids, check out these slides. And adults, tap into your inner child because that's how you make it to the kingdom, right? So this is the earth, and the earth's a big deal, right? Everything that's ever happened in your entire life has happened on this, on this, on this globe, and everything that you've watched on the news and seen and heard about and read about all takes place on this little spinning globe. And, and it's a big deal, right? Bigger than Venus, bigger than Mars, bigger than Mercury, Pluto, it's been demoted. It shouldn't be on my slide anymore. We'll get rid of it for the next time. But like the Earth, look at it. Like it's a, it's a big deal until we see the next slide. Yeah. Look at it. It's not so impressive. Neptune, I mean, who knows anything about Neptune? I don't know anything about Neptune, and it's massive compared to the Earth. Never mind Uranus or Saturn or Jupiter. Look at Jupiter. Absolutely colossal compared to the size of our, like, teeny-wee Earth. And then you think, Jupiter, impressive, until you see the next slide. Huh. Look at Jupiter. I mean, compared to the sun, the sun... The, the thing that we literally orbit around. Jupiter's no longer all that impressive, much less Earth. Our sun is impressive until what? You know where we're going, right? Next slide. Oh, look at the sun now compared to some of the other stars and planets that our Lord has made. At, at this scale, uh, Jupiter is a pixel, and Earth is invisible. Okay, we'll do one more. See our sun now? No, why? Because it's the size of one pixel. Jupiter is now invisible. Do you see the size and scale and scope of some of the planets and stars that our Lord has made, and this is just a tiny portion of the trillions of galaxies that exist in a cosmos that we can't even fathom its size. And Jesus says, do you know what? All of this, I made it. You know, like some of us are proud when we make dinner, you know? <laughs> some of us are proud when we make our beds, yeah? Here's Jesus saying, all this, I made it. And how did I make it? I just spoke. I spoke a word, and all this came into being. By, by mere verbal fiat, I created all things. And it's not just, my creativity isn't just on, the, on this great grand scale, but it does apply to our earth. And it does apply to all the beautiful things that we see on it, the intricacy of poetry and music and dance and technology and physics and math and beauty and intimacy and romance. Jesus looks at all of that and says, yeah, I made that too. That was also my idea. Do not get bored. Let's not get bored with the truths of Scripture like, oh yeah, Jesus created the world. Feel the power behind our Savior who can create these things from the largest planet to the smallest dust particle. Jesus creates it all. Jesus is better. 
Three, not only is he the heir, not only is he create, but look, don't forget, our author says, that Jesus is also God. We've made it all the way to verse three. That Jesus is God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Ligonier Ministries had just released their biannual survey on the state of theology in America. It's a national survey they do where they ask different theological questions to, to American adults and, and get their finger on the pulse of what, what common beliefs there are in our, in our culture in our day. Well, in their recently released report, they discovered that for the first time in our history, the majority of American adults now believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but that he was not God. The majority of American adults now believe that, that Jesus was a, a good teacher, someone that we should look up to, someone that we should listen to, but he wasn't God. He's not worthy of our, our worship. And so we just have to stop at this point and a point like this and remind ourselves that the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God. Let's take our theology from his word. Take our beliefs from, from, from the scriptures. We don't, don't want to dream them up ourselves or just kind of fall into them as we listen to folks in our culture. We want to come to God in his word and see what he has to say. And time and time and time again, Jesus himself said that he was God. And time and time and time again, the scriptures tell us that he was. And this is just one example. Verse three, he is the radiance of God's glory. So as the radiance of the sun comes to the earth, so the glory of God has come to the earth in Christ. But more than that, look, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. The exact imprint of God's nature. It means that Jesus isn't just like God. It's not just like a copy of God. Nor is he just in God's image, as, as we have been created beautifully so. No, he is the exact imprint to see Jesus, Jesus himself says, is to see God. To see one is to see the other. Jesus is God. Just a great teacher? No, Jesus is better. Okay, fourth thing we're told not to forget. Let's pick up some pace or we'll be here all day. Fourth, we're told, don't forget that Jesus is the one who upholds the universe. Not only did Jesus create the universe by speaking a word, he's also the one who upholds it. He's the one who sustains it. This means that Jesus isn't the kind of God that most people imagine. A God that is out there, maybe some, somewhere, but, but distant and disconnected from the realities of day-to-day -day life. No, the Bible presents Jesus as the kind of God who is intimately involved in the intricacies of day-to-day -day life, that without his gracious presence, if he were to withdraw his, his gracious presence, then all the planets that we looked at a moment ago would implode. Likewise, if he was to draw his gracious, withdraw his gracious presence from, from our lives, our, our own lives would come apart at the seams. But that's not how it works. Jesus is the one who's, who's engaged. Jesus is the one who is involved. He rules and overrules so that all things hold together. He rules and overrules so that all things work together for our good. Again, how does he do it? Just by speaking a word. 
upholds things, but by the word of his power. Just by decreeing that it, that it will be so, such as his power, such as his might, that he upholds the universe. Jesus is better. Fifth, don't forget that Jesus made purification for sins. Now, listen, that's one of the most churchy phrases ever, purification for sins. What, is, what does that mean? Well, it means something awesome. Because in this phrase, Jesus moves from being a cosmic powerhouse to an intimate and a personal savior. Now, to get at this point, we, we have to, first of all, deal with the, the S word. You see it there? Verse three, Jesus made purification for sin. Now, sin isn't a very popular word in our culture. It may not be a word that, that you like, and it may not be a concept uh, you, you, that appeals to you if you're just exploring and, and thinking about Christianity. What's important for us to understand, though, is that this S word, that the sin word, is simply the Bible's word to describe something that's really not all that controversial. The term is controversial, but the idea behind it really isn't controversial because sin is the word the Bible uses to describe what's wrong with the world around us. When you look at the world around us and you see that things, like, <laughs> things are clearly not as they're supposed to be. The Bible says, yeah, they're not. And the cause of that is, is sin. One preacher says, sin is a reality and you will make yourself look like a fool if you try to argue otherwise. You'll make yourself look like a fool if you try and deny this thing called sin because you'll lose all basis to say that things like 9-11 and abuse and racism are actually and objectively wrong and, and evil. This is the Bible's term to describe something we all agree with, which is there's something wrong with our world. Of course, we have to step on our own toes for a moment and acknowledge that the Bible doesn't just use this word to describe what's wrong with the world. It also uses this word to describe what's wrong with us. Sin isn't, oh, sin isn't just something that's out there. But, you know, those people over there with those issues, with those beliefs. Sin, according to the Bible, is something that's, that's within here. Sin is something that's deep within each and every one of us. And again, isn't that not a controversial idea? Like, we all hate people who think they're perfect. Why? Because we know that no one is. No thoughtful person is proud of everything they have ever thought, said, and done. No thoughtful person would stand up and say, I have never done anything wrong, and I have always done everything that I ought, ought to have done. Sin, we might not like the word, but, but we must embrace the reality. It's out there. It's in here. The world, we ourselves are not what we are supposed to be. But listen, why does the Bible bring it up? Why does the Bible bring sin up? You know, we're all here having a nice happy morning until this big sin word gets dropped in the, in the, in the middle of our, of our, of our morning. But, but Why? What does the scripture say? Why is it bringing up the reality of sin? To tell us what? That Jesus has made purification for it. Well, what does that mean? Well, to, to make purification for something, to purify something, simply means to make it clean. Think of a, a water purifier. And the same way we're told that, that Jesus has come to make purification for sin, meaning he has come to clean away our sin. 
that his blood shed on the cross becomes a river of grace that washes our sins away and makes us clean. Why does the Bible bring sin up? In order to tell us that Jesus saves us from it. If you're exploring Christianity, listen, do not let the God of the Bible become some sort of caricatured bad guy who looks up from heaven with a scowl and a frown and judges everyone for everything that's wrong in the world. And Christian, if you're wrestling with your own sin just now, do do not allow that, that conception of God to take root in your heart and your mind. God is some sort of foreboding, foreboding, angry, disappointed figure in the sky. No, the reason the Bible brings up sin, the reason the Bible brings up what's wrong with our world and with us is to tell us that for that there is grace. He is the God who reveals himself to us as the God of mercy and grace, of of patience, love, faithfulness. He is the God who brings up what's wrong in order that he might make it right. And that's what it means to, to become a Christian, to acknowledge that we've sinned and to celebrate that God has made it right through Christ. To acknowledge we we haven't lived as we ought and to accept the freedom that he offers us in Jesus. You know, if if you've not done that, if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, today is a really good day to start. You know, today is a really excellent day to become a Christian. And you can, because all it involves is acknowledging your sin and receiving forgiveness from Christ. If you have acknowledged those things, if you have received Christ as yours, then Christians rejoice. Jesus is better. Okay, number six. I said I'd speed up and then I slowed down. Number six, let's go. Don't forget, Jesus sits. I love this one. This is, listen, look at verse three. We're still in verse three. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One of the things we're gonna learn as we go through Hebrews is that the author is always making reference and allusion to the Old Testament. Remember we said it was written to a group of Jewish believers who themselves were very familiar with the Old Testament. And so the writer makes a lot of allusions and references to to the Old Testament scriptures. And here he's, he's making one of those. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the priests, those who made the sacrifices for the purification of sins, always stood. They never sat down. Why? Because their work was never done. Their work was never done. It was never over. There was always more sin, and there always had to be more sacrifices, and there always had to be more purification. So if you were a priest on duty, the last thing you ever did was sit. Not so with Christ. Jesus is the one who lives the perfect life. He dies to make purification for sin. He rises again. He's alive today. And then he ascends into heaven. And then what does he do when he gets to heaven? It's such a baller move. Like, he sits down. Why? Because it's done. Because it's complete. Because everything's been accomplished. Because there's no need to stand in service anymore because his work of salvation is full on our behalf. 
He has done everything. The work is complete. And so he now sits to reign from glory. You know, no vision of heaven ever catches Jesus busy, stressed, anxious, worrying and scurrying from one place to the next to try and keep all the balls of his creation in the air. No, he sits alive and in control, ruling from heaven. All is well. Jesus is better. Last and seventh, the author says, hey, when it comes to Jesus, don't forget. Don't forget that Jesus is superior. Superior to what? Well, look at verse four. Jesus is as much superior to angels as as his name is more excellent than theirs. As much superior to angels as his name is more excellent than theirs. So the, the name angel means messenger. And we're being told that Jesus, the, the, the full revelation from God, is better than all the previous messengers, and that his superiority is seen not just in his exaltation to sit at the right hand of God, it's also heard in the name that he now bears, in the title that belongs to him. In this context, what is that name? What is the name that's better than the name of Angel, well, look at verse two, look at verse five. The name he's been given is Son. Verse two, it's how he's introduced. God has spoken to us by his Son. Verse five, it's called it there again. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my Son? The Son is the one to whom all things have been given. The Son is the one to whom all authority belongs. The Son is the one who has No rival, the son is the one who has no equal. The son is the one before whom every knee shall bow. Why? Because Jesus is better. So friends, let's wrap this up. We all have spiritual dementia when it comes to the love of Christ. Sometimes we remember, but then we forget. We get caught up in the business and the busyness of of day-to-day life. And when we do that, we end up living really small spiritual lives. We exchange the big faith that we've been called to, these lives of freedom, purpose, joy, as we follow him and, and loving him and loving one another and serving the world. We exchange these big lives for, for small religious facades. But do you know what the good news is? The best news is? My grandmother forgot about my grandfather. But my grandfather never forgot his bride. And the good news of the gospel is that while we so often forget Christ, he never forgets about us. He never forgets about us. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible, which describes the the love of God, telling us that God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, you know what you see? He's looking at you with love. He's looking at you with love. And that's what empowers us to live a new life.
to live the kind of life that he has called us to. So more on this, much more on this in the coming weeks as we get into lots of practical applications of how we fix our eyes on Jesus and the difference it makes in day-to-day life. But for today, the application is worship. As we fix our eyes on Christ, don't forget who he is. Don't forget that he's the heir of all things. Don't forget that he's the one who created the world. Don't forget that he is God. Don't forget that he upholds the universe. Don't forget that he's the one who made purification for sins. Don't forget that he sits. Don't forget that he is superior. And since, let's be honest, it's hard to remember all of that, (laughs) don't forget that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Amen. Let's, Let's pray together. Jesus, we believe that you are worthy of all honor and blessing and praise that we could ever bring, that you are better, and that you have called us to fix our eyes on you, that we might live our lives in your love. Lord, we want to do that, but we know it starts by by seeing you as you're presented to us in your word. So we do that now together, and we worship you and praise you for being worthy of it all. These things we lift up in your perfect name. Amen.